Thank you, Neil. Good afternoon, everybody. I'd like to start by actually doing a little bit of an allegory and talk about a particular event that took place on the Clyde last year. I don't know how familiar you are with shipbuilding. I don't think Dundee's that famous for it. Um, but there was a decline for a long time in the shipbuilding in the Clyde and in Glasgow in generally until only one shipyard was left who could build commercial ships as opposed to the, um, the military ones. And that was Ferguson's. And they had to be resurrected with a massive injection of cash. Um, and their shipyard was rebuilt and they won a prestigious contract with Calmac to build two new ferries. Um, the, the project was signed um, or proposed and signed in 2015. Um, and construction began in 2016. So, something of a three-year programme, um, the pattern was, was laid out. And last year, it became well known about this one because they ran into problems. And the problems were that the, um, the contractor, the Calmac, decided to change the style of the ship, the project, the, um, the way it was propelled, and what it would actually do in service. So they changed the design part way through and this has caused quite a, a financial challenge and dispute between the shipyard and the contractor. And um, I don't think they've resolved it yet. Um, there have been changes, certainly. Uh, and why I'm telling you that will come clear a little later on. But I'd like you to think through the process that had to be engaged in by the shipyard from 2015 onwards. If you're going to build a ship, you have to do certain things at the very, very beginning. Uh, and the first one, you have to decide what's the ship going to be used for? What's its purpose? Why are we building it? What's it going to do when it's completed and ready to sail? And in Calmac's terms, this was going to be a ferry. It was going to ply particular routes within Scotland. And because of that, it had to have um, ad adapted um, landing gear because not all the harbours in the Scottish islands work um, the same way. And some are shallower, some are um, more difficult to get to. So the boat had to actually build this in. And so that was part of the design and had to be taken into account when thinking about it. It also had to work out how many people it could carry. How, how many are going to be allowed to go on this um, particular ship? And what kind of cargo, if it's going to carry cargo, can it carry? Um, and, and how many vehicles? And all, all of these kinds of things have to be built into the thinking about the particular ship. So that is decided and drawings begin. And drawings are laid out. They might be done on computer. They might be done actually on paper. But drawings in massive detail numbers and numbers of them, big chests full of drawings would have been produced to cover every aspect of the design and the theory that's gone into actually putting this ship together. That phase is finished and, and everything is signed off and ready to go. And, and the next phase has to be then adapted and that's the building phase. A shipyard has to be selected. In this case, it's going to be Ferguson's. 
But there, there was considerations even then as to whether or not that was a good one, because if, if you've ever watched a ship being launched, one of the problems that they sometimes have is that um, as it goes down the slipway, um, the, the river it's going into isn't wide enough, and um, it, it impacts on the far bank. And that's happened um, on occasion, so nowadays that has to be thought about and planned, and there has to be space for the launch after it's finished and ready to go. A keel is then set down, and the ship begins to take shape. Following the design, following that which has been done in phase one, and this continues for some months, maybe years, until finally there's a ship sitting there on the slipway, ready to go. And that which the men who conceived it in the first place and put it down on paper as drawings only, in theory, is now reality. And it's become the ship that was intended, or in Ferguson's case, not intended, because it didn't quite match what they wanted it to do. And then phase three, and, and this, is beginning, this begins with the launch, of course. Um, the ship is ready to sail. It might not be totally complete, but it's nearly there, and it goes. It's, it's allowed to slip down into the water, and it's beginning its life as a ship. And the shipyard in which it's built is left behind. And, and everything that went with it in the drawing office is left behind. And only if there's a problem later on would you go back and look at what the design said and what needed to be rebuilt because a part had broken. So all of the, the planning, all of the construction phase, once the ship's in service, would generally be left behind and the ship would sail and it would be in service carrying people, doing what it was intended to do some years before in the minds of one or two people who had created the concept for this particular ship in these particular conditions. So why have I told you all of that? Well, we're going to have our reading now and we'll look at the Lord Jesus Christ in exactly the same way. We read Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he is not put to the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels, you crowned him with glory and honour, 
and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in this he himself has suffered, being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Thank you, Neil. I submit to you, therefore, that the nature of the Lord Jesus Christ <coughs> can be seen in three phases, and that each of them is a bit different and, and, and has its own characteristics and its own particulars. In the beginning of the world and in the beginning of human existence upon the world, there was a major problem arose in that the first man and woman got it wrong and took of the fruit of the tree, we talked about that a little bit this morning, and they broke the law of God as a consequence. But even before that, Jesus had been planned, and it was known that that would happen by the Father God himself. And so the Son, who would redeem that and bring it back from the brink, would, was already planned from the very beginning. And, and that planning, that idea that one day a Redeemer would come, had to have all the characteristics that the ship did. What was the purpose? Why did he come? What, what was the aim in bringing this Redeemer into the world? And, and the answers trip off our tongues and are quite easy, aren't they? Because the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to take away sin and to save sinners and to redeem the problem that had been introduced right there at the very beginning. 
there had to be some thought given to how wide and, and, and far this would go. Would, would the people who were involved with Adam and Eve, just their family be saved? Would, would, would there be a limited redemption for the world? No, it wouldn't be, because it very quickly became clear that all men would need saving. And so the capacity of this particular plan had to be all-encompassing, and there had to be no limit in that all could come under this all-encompassing umbrella, if they so choose, to be part of the redemption programme. And right from the very beginning of the scripture, right from the very beginning of Genesis, slowly, bit by bit, little details are released as the plan becomes more and more clear as to what was going to happen. And examples are given. And for instance, a man called Abraham takes his son and, and nearly kills him on a particular place in Israel. And he's only stopped at the last minute by words that would ring down the ages thereafter. The Lord will provide himself a lamb. And a bit later, there is, there is another lamb killed to save people in Egypt on the night of the Exodus. And, and slowly, 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 the images pile up and the detail becomes more and more clear as the planning is revealed by the God in heaven who speaks through his prophets and tells eventually that there would be a man whose hands were pierced. There would be a saviour coming out of Bethlehem. There would be a king that there would be a great deal of suffering as different prophets pronounced different parts of this plan and explained it to those who were able to understand it. And in many ways, I guess, it's only when you're near the end, or even at the end, when the full picture becomes clear. And you can look back and say, oh yes, yes, that, that bit was in place then. That bit was revealed then. That prophet told us that bit. And today we can do that easily, for we have the full picture. But for people gradually throughout that period, it must have been a little more difficult to see fully. But the point is that it's only planning. It's, it's only the concept. There's no physical form at this stage. Just as there was no ship on the slipway, just drawings in an office and ideas in the heads of men, and plans that were being put together. And so the nature of Jesus is non-existent in the sense that we normally think of that word when the Old Testament is being written. Some have postulated that in fact Michael, the archangel Michael, was um, the Lord Jesus Christ in, in, in the Old Testament, and that he was a spirit in heaven that eventually became the Son of God. But there's no evidence for that. There's a lot more evidence that the plan was being unfolded gradually and that slowly, slowly, men were beginning to understand that God did have a really clear-cut purpose and a really firm idea and had had that idea from the very beginning of time. And it was only as men were told little bits that men began to understand what it was about. So the whole thing is finished um, as a plan by the time we come to the start of the New Testament. 
And then men begin to recognise what the detail has been. And the work of the Lord Jesus Christ begins with his birth at the beginning of the New Testament. There's a verse in, in Galatians chapter 4 now, which rather puts this into context and shows us precisely what was going on. That verse reads, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. When the fullness of time was come, when the planning was finished, when, when that preparation by God had been completed, then the time was ready. And a child was born to a particular woman, a very carefully selected woman. It wasn't just any woman who was able to do this. Mary was very specifically selected by the angel Gabriel just as the right shipyard had to be made, had to be selected for that ship to be made there. And our early records in the New Testament tell us that this child grows physically and spiritually until at the age of 12 he's there in the temple asking questions and, and learning. It seems almost teaching because his questions are very penetrating and, and very revealing as to how much he has understood and how much he has come to recognize of why he's there what's his purpose why has he come and he will tell his parents didn't you know that i would be in my father's house didn't you know this is where i would be this is why i've come this is my purpose in life and when john owns his gospel record he will write these words the word was made flesh and dwelt amongst us and we beheld his glory the glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He couldn't be seen before that. There was no physical individual that you could turn to and say, this is the Son of God, until he had been revealed, until he had been brought into life at the beginning of the New Testament. So Jesus becomes, as a human being, he becomes part of our race, part of our experience. And so he knows fatigue, he knows hunger and thirst. He experiences human life with its ups and downs, its disappointments, its joys, its happiness and its sadness. He knew all of these things. And in our reading that we took a moment or two ago in Hebrews 2, there are then some very revealing words about him. And, and, and very um, draw-out comments about what his existence was like and how he would be in this world. I asked Neil particularly to read from um, the New King James, although the King James is even better in this particular respect. And it's verse 14 that, that particularly um, has always appealed to me in the King James Version. It, it doesn't make good English, and, and an English teacher would probably say, no, 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 that's, that's too many repeats of the same idea. You shouldn't do it that way. Let's read it in the King James. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, the ones he needs to save, the ones he's come to deal with, he also himself likewise, you shouldn't do that in English apparently, he also himself likewise took part of the same. And through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. When, when William Tyndale translated the Bible into English for the very first time, 
he put that phrase in, he also himself likewise, because he recognised that the underlying language in Hebrews was very, very emphatic, very, very insistent that this Jesus, this Son of God, this, this one who had changed the world by this time, was of our stuff, our kind of existence, our body, our flesh and blood. He, he came in exactly the same way. And Tyndale felt it was necessary to make that point really, really firmly. And later versions have lost that to some degree and have downgraded the, the language to make it more acceptable English. The point needs to be made that Jesus was just like you and me. But notice what happens. Why did he come? Here's the purpose to destroy death, to destroy the one who has the power of death to destroy sin, to de reverse the problem that had come into the world right at the very beginning. And they're still talking about it now in this New Testament. But when these words are written, this letter to the Hebrews, it had all happened. He had come. And those who had lived at the same time had touched him, had heard him, had seen him, had listened to him, and had learned from him. And the concept had become reality and gone beyond the planning stage. And he was able to talk to them. And they were able to understand now, much more fully, the purpose of God from the beginning. If you are still in Hebrews, turn to chapter 4. Because we're told a bit more about Jesus there in verse 15. By this time, Jesus has ascended to heaven, but the writer is looking back. And this, this was in our hymn. We have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. And think about what that means. He was able to sin. He could have sinned. He was tempted to be, sin, to be a sinner, but he didn't do it. He had the determination and the ability to overcome those temptations. We're familiar with three temptations right at the beginning of the Gospel records. The turning of stones into bread and the jumping off the temple and taking all the kingdoms of the world and how he responded to those. And that, those are part of our hymn, our opening hymn. But he didn't give in to any of them. And he resisted. But the point is, he was of our nature. He wasn't some spirit being that could actually resist these things without thinking about it. These things were real to him, just as they are to us. But for him, there was the ability to overcome them. And think how that fits in with our shipbuilding illustration. Because when the ship is being built, when the systems are being put in place on it, when, when the engines are there, and when the navigation system is put in place, where, where the air conditioning, all of those little systems are put in, they all have to be tested. They all have to be tried out. And if they fail, they have to be replaced. This man, this son of God, was tested. He passed the test every time. 
but he was tested nevertheless and he overcame all those tests but he was developing and he was learning and if you go into the next chapter in chapter 5 of Hebrews and verse 8 it tells us that though he were a son though, though he came from this impeccable pedigree of the, of the God himself yet he learned obedience by the things that he suffered and there's a learning process going on throughout the existence of the Lord Jesus we tend to think of him as being perfect right from the start not possible for him to go wrong not true it was possible for him to go wrong and he had to learn and he had to overcome the problems and he does this throughout what we call his ministry and the three years as he developed and became the son who would receive the words again we quoted this morning I am well pleased with him he has done what I asked him to do. We're familiar with the final test and how at last, having three years of work behind him, he comes to Gethsemane and is challenged by the fact that he must give his life in order to complete the story and in order to complete the purpose. He could have escaped, he could have called on help, but he didn't do any of that. He prayed for a way out. And when that prayer could not be answered, for there was no other way, he submitted to his Father's will and went to the cross. He was perfect in that sense, right to the end. And the final test was passed. And he was ready. He was complete now. And a new life waited. And something else stretched out ahead of him the likes of which we cannot fully understand because when Jesus came out of the tomb he was a new man a new life a new kind of existence a new nature had been placed upon him and the final phase of his work had begun the letter to Corinthians talks about the concept that is there for all of us but must have been there first of all and was there first of all for Jesus it says that this mortal, this, this dying, this sinning, this breakable nature must put on immortality and become everlasting. It must be a different nature. And elsewhere in Philippians, it was said that because of his obedience, because he was able to overcome all these challenges and all these tests, he was highly exalted and given a name that was above every name because he had been obedient unto death and had done everything that his father had asked him to do. In Luke 24, we have his final appearance to his, or nearly his final appearance to his disciples um, and, and it's after he has been raised from the dead and you'll see echoes again from this morning here. Luke 24 and verse 36. The disciples are in the upper room. And as they were speaking, Jesus stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace be unto you. They were terrified and affrighted and supposed they had seen a spirit. 
they were not expecting that at all. He said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands, my feet, it's I myself. Handle me and see. A spirit has not flesh and bones, as you see me have. He was real. He wasn't a spirit in the sense of being totally disembodied from our existence. He has flesh and bones. And although Corinthians will later say that flesh and blood cannot inherit eternal life, it's clear that flesh and bones can, and Jesus did. And so he's a perfect man, a perfect example now. He cannot sin anymore, for he has been made immortal. And the records tell us that he goes to heaven and sits on the right hand of his Father, interceding for those who come to the Father in prayer and waiting, waiting and waiting for the final phase, the final point in which he returns to the earth and changes it forever and completes the purpose for which he was built, the purpose for which he was planned, the purpose for which he came into the world to bring all people to God so that they might be all in all with him. The nature of Jesus changes, but it's always part of a preordained plan that his Father put in place right at the very beginning. And we wait for the final phase to be unfolded and take our opportunity to be part of it. <laughs>